Our devotion for today comes from Philemon verses 1 through 21. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even more yourself. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for our gospel proclamation is that letter to Philemon that I just finished reading for you from Paul and serves as the basis of our theme for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost. Sisters and brothers of Christ himself. It was about 18 years ago. We were working on a project that required some outdoor, in-the-heat sweat equity for the church. You see, the youth ministry was exploding, and we had to find some space for them in our tiny little church. Teenagers really needed a place to hang outside the home, and we wanted to make sure St. Peter's was a destination location that they would want to come to and be able to relax in their ever-increasingly stressful lives. So one of our members was at work one day, when he saw that his construction company was getting ready to scuttle a portable with four rooms and two bathrooms. Pretty much in serviceable condition, but of no use to them any longer. So, for the cost of a trailer license and transport fees, we got an entire building that met all of our youth ministry needs. 
another member, who built docks on the St. John's River for a living, built us staircases and handicap-accessible ramps. Some other members poured a concrete sidewalk to connect the new building to the back of our fellowship hall. All we had to do was hook up the electricity, and we were in business. Little did I know, that would be the hardest part. So like we always did, I went looking for the free talent in our little congregation to get the job done. And none of my experienced people volunteered. Oh, they would pour sidewalks. They would paint the church. They would even re-popcorn the ceilings. But none of them wanted to tackle the electrical. That's because they knew what I didn't know. Electrical meant long hours in the attic digging long lines a foot or two down into the dirt, and finally switching on the power, only to find you shorted something along the way and had to pull new lines because the old lines were not secure like you thought they were. Well, I found out, and so did the only two members who were willing to help, who were as ignorant as I was about the process. The fourth member that finally agreed to help was a journeyman electrician, Mike who would teach us all the nightmare processes. All I had to do was find a crew of three people for him, and we're in business. Easy peasy, right? <laughs> I was one, so I only had to recruit two more. Well, we arrived early that Saturday morning, and the journeyman electrician, Mike, took one look at my crew, an elderly member, Art, and a really scrawny backwoods redneck, Andy, who were the only two people I could con into the project. And he immediately took me aside out of their hearing range and said those faithful words that means nothing good is falling. No offense, but, well, what came after that was nothing but offense. These guys aren't good enough. Couldn't you find anything better? We're never going to get the job done today with these two. What were you thinking? I have better things to do on a Saturday than work with these knuckleheads. All pretty much totally offensive. I heard him up, heard him out, and simply replied, look, man, this is who volunteered. We're here and nobody else is. Are we going to do this or what? Well, he wasn't happy about it, but begrudgingly got started anyway. What do you know? We got it done in six hours flat. You see, Art and Andy had a real special quality Mike totally underestimated. Unlike most people, they listened to exactly what you said and did exactly what you told them to. Abby. And taught Mike, Abby. sometimes there's more than meets the eyes when you judge people's potential. Today, we have a break in the pericope between the letter to the Hebrews and the letter to Timothy. And we find ourselves reading about another kind of Mike, Philemon, who likewise looked at his worker, Onesimus, whom he likewise found useless. When you look at the particulars of Onesimus' service, I think we would all pretty much agree he is worthless too. But we require full transparencies when it comes to Philemon and Onesimus today. The fact is, Philemon was a slave owner, and Onesimus was a runaway slave. Now, certainly no one did more to eliminate slavery than Christians have, all the way up to the abolitionist, 
many who were Quakers in the 19th century in the United States who agitated to end the abhorrent system which contributed to the Civil War. But in Paul's day, at the writing of this letter, the Christians had no such influence over the system and worked around it for the sake of saving all, even slaves and slave owners alike. And even Paul admitted that Onesimus, while he may have fled because he was a slave, was still useless, worthless of character, and even stole from Philemon before he fled. So Paul uses this opportunity of relationship to change Philemon in a fundamental way and help him recognize Onesimus has changed in an essential way as well. The more things change, the more they stay the same, we say. Well, sometimes that's true, and sometimes it isn't. We have watched so many students come back over the years, and they are nothing like they were when we had them as students. Some for the better, and unfortunately, some worse. And then the old idiom applied as well. I just ran into Tyler at the gym last Tuesday. And after a brief conversation, I ascertained that he was still the wonderful, amazing young man he was when he was here. Older, wiser, thinner, but still the good old Tyler we loved when he was here. But he is the exception. So many for the better almost come back to me as reborn from their formerly derelict life, and I can hardly believe they are the same person. Donnie is my favorite example. Donnie was a dog when I knew him in high school. He did go to church and participate in youth group, but also led a scandalous life on the side I was unaware of. Lots of beer and girls, if you know what I mean. I liked him a lot, and finding out later about this side of his, his side hustle really disappointed me. I'd lost touch with him through college and after college and didn't really know what happened to him until Marcy and I went to seminary about seven years later. And there he was in my first year class. I was so excited to introduce him to Marcy, and he was so excited to introduce me to his wife and baby son. That's when I found out he had been serving as a DCE, just like Mr. Yerk, after attending Concordia Seward, and then started seminary at the encouragement of pastors in Utah, where he was serving. When Marcy and I went back to Colorado one time, some people that Donnie and I mutually knew from high school asked me about Donnie, and I told him he was at seminary with me. One of my friends told me about his scandalized life during the time we were in high school and all the way up to college. He felt someone like that should not be a pastor. I was shocked. I had no idea. So when I was back at seminary, I asked him if it was true or just ugly gossip from our high school days. Donnie looked at me and simply replied, yep, it's true. In fact, if I had all the money from all the beer I drank in high school, I'm pretty sure I could have cash-flowed college and seminary. College was a lot cheaper in those days. Just like that, he confessed it. But at the same time, there was no shame. There was simple resolve that he had messed up, but that that life was over. And he was reborn to serve the Lord from now on as a pastor, building on the time he already served as a DCE. In our lesson today, 
Paul likewise wanted Philemon to know that whatever he thought of Onesimus as a slave, it doesn't matter anymore because he's reborn of Paul's ministry and heart and became useful for the gospel where formerly he was generally useless. I've wondered that for years about even myself. Now, I've lived about five different separate lives over my lifetime. There were my high school days, and then completely separate from that was my military days, and then completely separate from that again was my college days, and then completely separate from all the three, four, and fat for mention, there were my working days before I was a pastor, and now probably the most significant portion of my life is my life as a pastor. Mm -hmm. Nothing has been as all-encompassing as my pastor days. I literally was reborn for it through matriculation, education, and spiritual revelation. And I've not been around anyone from my former lives at all since my rebirth as a pastor. I wonder all the time, what would they think of me now? Oh, I know there were times in the past when I, just like Onesimus, was worthless. And I wonder if the ones from my past may still see me that way as the person they always knew. Or did they see me more fondly in those days and now think I'm wasting my life doing what I'm called to do? Please don't worry. I have no intention of ever going back to my former lives the way I was. That man is long dead and belongs in the grave of the past where God laid him. No, my life is no longer my own to do as I please. That is worthless living. Rather, my life is now Christ and to serve him only so he may be glorified. Because I know now I was nothing without his death and resurrection which saved my soul. I was just a runaway slave running away from the real responsibility that God was ready to equip me with the ability to do. I was just a thief of all that did not belong to me stealing my time, talent, and tithes from God and his holy church. I was a slave master that lorded over people under me and despised those who could not be me. In a word, I was Onesimus, and I was Philemon, and this letter was to me and at the same time for me. No offense, just truth. And this truth is yours as well. For you have been reborn from slavery and sinful mastery as well. You are encouraged by God's word to live the life Christ died for you to live. You are the ones that God now has confidence of your obedience. No longer because you are slaves and masters, but now sisters and brothers of Christ himself. Amen. Amen. Now may that peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen. The word of the Lord, according to 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for our gospel proclamation is the letter to Timothy from Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and serves as the basis of our theme for this 16th Sunday after Pentecost. Good lives only God can give. This saying is trustworthy. The opening line of this letter to Timothy is a word of encouragement from Paul to Bishop Timothy that God's word is faithful. Now, don't let that just slip by with nary a thought. I mean, let's just consider for a moment what is truly faithful these days. The obvious one is the cry of fake news for the last five to seven years or so. I think it's pretty clear to anyone paying attention to any media of late that today's conspiracies are tomorrow's facts and today's truths are tomorrow's carefully buried lies and disinformation. The competition for your attention is fierce, and it's pretty obvious people are less interested in getting it right than they are in getting your attention first. Clicks mean money, and, well, we all know what the love of money is. That's right, the root of all evil. Okay, enough of that. That's the obvious one. But what about these less obvious ones? I have personally witnessed words in the dictionary and their definition thereof changed in online dictionaries literally the same day some famous person defined it differently to fit their cultural agenda. This is ridiculous, but I can assure you it's happening. So don't trust any dictionary online and probably no printed dictionary after 2000 AD. Buyer beware is all I'm saying. Speaking of buyer beware, that's another thing you can't trust anymore. How long something will last? What is warranted against and heaven forbid you call out the manufacturer's guarantee? Literally, every time buried somewhere in the fine print is the exception That just happens to be why your product failed. So you can't even trust a rock-solid, no-fail, 100% guarantee. And we've become immune to the notion that anything can be truly trusted anymore. Well, we'll see, we say, 
and are rarely surprised when things don't work out the way they're supposed to. So Paul's assurance of the trustworthiness of God's word today is indeed significant. And we should take courage that this word has been truly rock solid, guaranteed for 2,000 years, never to be disproven or found failing in God's goal for it. And God's goal here in this lesson is the good pastor. Okay, I know all of you have been around long enough to know I am not a good pastor. I'm not even a good father or husband. I was not a good soldier or chaplain, and I certainly was not a good businessman. For we know that God alone is good, and we should not ascribe that designation to anyone in the sinful flesh. But you all know that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not saying that kind of good. No, rather, he's talking about the noble task of becoming a pastor. And I think what Paul is trying to get across is that being a pastor and or a deacon is rough work. And you want a man that is not struggling with sins that torment them day and night, making their ability to serve the church nearly impossible. They are struggling with drinking. It's just not a good idea to put them in front of the communion wine every Sunday. If they're consumed with passion for women, well, they shouldn't be counseling women alone late at night or any other time for that matter. And if they can't enter a quarrel amongst members of the church without raising fists in anger, they probably should not be in the ministry of conflict resolution. If their children are cavorting about town and their wife is with other men, well, they just might not be the best family life counselors. Not that any pastor is perfect. You all know that for a fact. But there are some things pastors and deacons should reasonably have under control. And quite frankly, anyone who knows God has forgiven them and wants to lead a life in service and leadership to the church should likewise have noble and reasonable control in these areas as well. I'm almost certain there is no one here tonight or today that doesn't understand this logical reality. But it was not so in Timothy's day. A group of antinomian Christians known as the Nicolaitans violated all these principles wantonly as antinomians, which translates roughly wanting to live without rules, policies, or guidelines. Because they felt once they were forgiven, nothing they did from that point on matters to God. Okay, makes sense, right? Well, I guess. But this really was a problem. I mean, a major problem, major difficulty. People were getting hurt emotionally physically, and above all, spiritually. God gave them the law so they would know what was bad for them and everyone around them. And if there were no more attempts to even feebly be guided by God, the damage would indeed be unbelievable and hurtful and catastrophic and damning for sure. Jesus even spoke specifically to this when he spoke to John's prophecy in Revelation 2.16, saying, Therefore, change the way you think and act, 
If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Dearly church fathers, heeded this warning, carefully crafting good creeds to help summarize the truth of God and clarify who was following the faithful word of God. Then they worked even harder throughout history, devising teaching manuals known as catechisms to make sure that we use them to this day to help people learn the basics of Christian living, not to be saved by it, but to joyfully love the one properly who saved us from our sins. Oh, the shame it would be if this was the first generation of Christians that would fail in these creeds and catechisms that guided the church for a thousand millennia and longer. Slouching back to the Sodom and Gomorrah, the Nicolaitans, the Gnostics, and so many other heresies, they denied Jesus shortly after they believed in Jesus for selfish want of selfish living rather than looking back to the cross again and remembering the pain Jesus suffered and the death he died to save us from ever being unrepentant sinners ever again. This is indeed why we have a school. This is indeed why we have several new member classes that last 12 weeks long. This is why we have public school confirmation that lasts three years. This is why we have Bible study after Bible study to never forget the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who took our Nicolaitan-like sin to that cross and destroyed it there so we could truly live new good lives because of Christ. But some fail, and we do well to learn why they failed, so we can save ourselves and even our children from doing likewise. He showed up at our young adults Bible study group in Denver that Marcy and I attended with my friends from high school youth group when we were first married. He came puppy-dogging after a pretty Chilean girl who had just moved from Hawaii to be close to her mother in Denver. She was invited by her friend who was already in our group. Now, she always referred to him as just a friend that she met in Hawaii in a similar Bible study group there. And he immediately followed her to the mainland the same time she came over. A coincidence? I think not. And it turned out I was right. Shortly after they joined our group, he boldly broke out of their friend zone and asked her to marry him. And in utter shock as to his feelings, she confusedly said yes. The craziness of the romantic gesture overwhelmed her sensible nature. Well, mother to the rescue, pointing out some obvious flaws for their future marriage. First of all, he was a surfer growing up in Hawaii and had no skills, no prospects, and quite frankly, no way to provide for her, let alone pull his own weight. And sensibility at the lunacy of his actions, we could all plainly see, finally won out. And she broke off the engagement and returned the ring. Now, we all thought that's where the story would end. He would realize the jig was up, return to Hawaii and his surfboards, where he would forget about her forever. Boy, were we wrong. 
He immediately set about to gain a meaningful skill by signing up with a fly-by-night bathtub refinishing company, convinced it would prove his economic viability to his love and, more importantly, to her mother. But this would prove fruitless as the commissions did not come rolling in as promised and no health benefits were attached with the meager guaranteed minimum wage, which was only $7 an hour in those days. I remember that. Because that's all I made too, which is why I had a second job and was aggressively finishing my degree. I guess Marcy saw that I had potential. Thank you for believing in me, honey. I really wouldn't be the man I am today if it were not for you. So he volunteered at the church and was quickly hired to be the youth and family pastor, having no real skill, but felt the vocation of ministry could change her heart. It didn't because he was never properly trained for it. And counseling a woman one late night, he fell into a devastating affair for everyone concerned. Most of all, for his beloved former fiance, who told him to go home to Hawaii. It was over with no hope of rekindling the relationship whatsoever. The truth is, I don't believe he ever really failed as a Christian. In fact, I'm not sure he ever trusted God's word to begin with. He failed by idolizing his beloved and using God like a tool from the shed that you leave somewhere the day you used it and forget it entirely, only to buy a new one for the next problem soon after. Christ wants all of us to avoid this devastation to churches, pastors, and deacons alike. Because his sacrifice was not earned cheaply and without merit. It was earned for our reverence and with his great pain and sacrifice so we could avoid eternal pain and constant sacrifice and live good lives only God can give. Amen. Now may that peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen.